Hello from sunny South Florida. Welcome guests to our old-timey radio show. Here sitting across the table from me is Desert Man from the Old West, Connor Boyle. <laughs> and sitting across from me is renowned Florida man, Christopher Ludwig. Oh, Jesus. I don't want that title. <laughs> being a being a desert man is is a little bit more respectable than being a Florida man. Any day, yeah. So as you guys can tell, we we are currently recording in the same uh, location for once. Yeah, this is the first time we've ever done this, um, which is cool. It's a little different, you know? Yes. If people want to know the behind the scenes, they can contact <laughs> us or we'll post some sort of video later about that. But yeah, that's, yeah. So Connor, did you enjoy the book that I have enticed you to read a bunch and then you completely forgot about and came to me and like, hey, I wanted to read this series. And I said, you son of a bitch, that's the series I've been telling you about for years. Um, well, I'd like to first say I'm very excited to be bringing this book to the podcast uh, and introducing it. Uh, so we're talking about The Chase by Clive Cussler, which is part of the Isaac Bell series. And to answer your question, I love this book. I thought it was great. I'm definitely going to be reading more of these, not just for the podcast, because we want to do you know more in this series. Highly recommended. Yeah. I, like I was telling you uh, earlier, uh, like the first five of this series are solid, and even after that, they're they're interesting reads. Uh, and like the the last one that I read was also really good, and it ties into a lot of the Cussler verse more than you'd think. There are characters that show up in that book that show up in other, uh, like, Dirk Pitt books and stuff later. Uh, it, yeah, interesting. The, the kind of fancy literary term for that might be intertextuality, which is you know, used to refer to when uh, books, you know, have characters that appear in one book and then another, or, the, or when a storyline intersects with that of another book. And that's easy to see because this is, this is a historical novel so you could see how maybe characters in this might appear, you know, further down the line, or maybe generations, you know, like I could I could imagine like Isaac Bell's great grandson appearing in a, a contemporary novel. That would that would kind of feel fitting. I kind of I'm I'm kind of surprised they haven't done something more like that. The Titanic Secret, the one that I talked about, that has more crossover, it has like a, a beginning and end, like that bookends it with a story in the modern day with Dirk Pitt. And then the rest of the book is in the past with Isaac Bell, but there's no physical crossover of those characters. I, I wonder what, you know, the great grandson of Isaac Bell would be doing because this book, The Chase and the, the Isaac Bell adventure series are about a private detective agency. And we're going to talk a little bit about specifically a private detective agency yeah. in kind of the early 1900s, yeah. kind of the end of the Old West, the, the beginning of the Industrial Age. It's the progressive era in the United States. It's coming on the heels of the Gilded Age, yep. which involved, you know, westward expansion and industrial expansion. This is a, a little bit after that, where people are beginning to, well, they're continuing to grapple with the role of industry and technology in their lives and, and how it affects the workforce. But so this book is about a private detective. And one of the things we want to talk about, and we'll get to that later, is what are private detective agencies? What do they do? What would they have been doing at this time? And most specifically, which private detective agency was this heavily influenced by and inspired by? Yeah, and we were we were talking a little bit earlier. We took a trip to the beach because I haven't been to the beach in probably eight years. But yeah, just, just Florida things. Florida things. But we were talking about contemporary private militaries and intelligence organizations like Blackwater and Triple Canopy and how... This this uh, phenomenon of the private army, the private police force, 
has really been a, a troubled thing from the get-go. But the Van Dorn Detective Agency, of which Isaac Bell is a member, is, is represented as a pristine organization, even though it seems modeled, at least in some ways, off of the Pinkertons. Um, which were, depending on who you talk to, not a pristine agency. Yeah, it, they were. They had a reputation as being the a very muddled, very muddy, very shadowed past. Mm-hmm. Not doing what you'd expect. Uh, definitely not doing what they advertised that they do. We'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. There, the, Alan Pinkerton imagined the detective as this sort of rugged gentleman who could function in high society as well as uh, in the uh, the West. You know, uh, wrangling up outlaws. And the Isaac Bell character is a very much the epitome of that. Yes, he is. He is. Uh, when he's first introduced, he's wearing. This nice white linen suit, very pristine. Generally what he wears. And, yeah. But then Clive Cussler makes a point to point out his boots, which are really heavily worn, very practical, you know, worn-in boots. So you get this nice image of a guy who, you know, can function in high society, but he has certainly seen his fair share of action. Yes, and his introduction is definitely something I want to touch on. But uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with this series or familiar with this author... Clive Cussler is a wonderful, interesting man that most of his books take place in the modern day and center around a salvage company that goes like treasure hunting and puts things in museums and generally deals with some sort of ecological problem or villain. This series, however, has spun off of that and takes place in the past and has nothing to do with it and is, some would say, a Western I tend to think it's a, a nice middle ground between Western and Noir, but I would also like to bring up that there are many spy elements to it, especially in this novel. Um, there's a future novel literally called The Spy, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, but I think the introduction of Isaac Bell is the introduction of like a James Bond-type character. Very much so. Uh, by the way, this is the Dadlit podcast. <laughs> Dadlit podcast. Uh, we didn't get to that. But you're right. When Isaac Bell walks in, he he is first introduced. Well, actually, so first of all, the the introduction takes place on a uh, riverboat casino. Yeah, in Mississippi. There, it's cool. There is a poker game being played out between uh, two gentlemen. One of them, which is the founder and head of the Van Dorn Detective Agency, Joseph Van Dorn. He assures his counterpart that the person they're waiting on is late for a good reason. And within a few moments of that discussion, Isaac Bell arrives with a briefcase. I believe, it, is it handcuffed to him? I don't remember. No, I think it's just a valise that he has. Yeah, it's a him. very thin, thin little uh, briefcase he carries yeah. around. And shows up in a pristine white suit, um, workman's boots, and comments about the game. And also they invite him to join there's a discussion of how good of a quick draw he is that seems very unnatural to have into the discussion. And he very quickly draws his, um, which you'll soon find out if you read any more of these, his like iconic thing about him is that he keeps a Derringer pistol tucked into a, a, a pouch inside of his hat. He has a nice wide-brimmed hat that he can whip off and draw this gun out of in the blink of an eye. He uses it uh, more than once in this in this book. Yeah, it's an interesting. It You'll see a, it a lot. You'll see it a lot. It's a subtle. Well, I don't know how subtle it is, but you know, James Bond has the eventually uses the Walter PPK, and it is a you know small weapon that one can um, 
you know, conceal, and this is similar, right? He has this sort of spy quality. And his introduction reminded me of the introduction of Dirk Pitt in Night Probe. He, he, he kind of just walks out of the shadows, and it's like, oh, He that's... walks out of the shadows, he joins the conversation, they exchange the valise with another valise. The one he has is on whatever case he just finished, and the new one is for the case that they discuss over this poker game, which he absolutely destroys. Like, he wins that game hands down, and it's it's almost laughable how much of a like hyper competent protagonist they're already setting him up as in the just the introduction of the character yeah i if i'm if i I might be mistaken but i think there's a point where Kessler says you know he's intentionally he could win the game very easily but he sort of plays it so they can continue to play and so he's sort of a a gracious winner but until the end until he does win (laughs) but but actually i do have to i have to disagree with you because if you remember the book actually doesn't open here Correct, the but this book, is the introduction. Well, the, it opens with an older Isaac Bell. There's the, yeah. fr, there's a framing of this story, of of this of the story of the kind of crime at the center of this of this book, but it opens with an, an elderly Isaac Bell overseeing a salvage uh, operation. Cl- cl- surprise, cl- surprise! Cl- he cl- slipped one in. He cannot help himself, and so um, we got to add that to. I want to add that specifically to the Dadlet checklist list Clive Clive Kessler slips it in Uh, (laughs) no I want to add salvage operation is there a salvage operation at any point all right yeah we'll throw that in there I I think we'll be surprised how often that comes up well if we continue to review Clive Kessler books every book yeah um but also the I think it's like the third paragraph of the book enters into dadlet territory in, in in my estimation at least Kessler starts talking about the operations of a, uh, what is it? It is a Pacific uh, 461 locomotive. I mean, you're not, uh, you're not a page and a half into this book before Clive Kessler is talking about the way this locomotive engine functions. Trains, folks, we're in Dadlet territory. Oh yeah, this is, a, you're, if you like trains, you're going to love this book. That, that is sort of, now you've read, I think almost all of the Isaac Bell books. There's just the latest that I haven't read. So I've read yeah. all but one because I'm putting it off because I don't know if it will be truly the last one and I don't want them to end. I mean, trains would be the way to get around in this this time in American history, but this much of the story does take place in the West. So the extent, well, I, I yeah. do want to point out, again, so it's the very end of the Old West. Cars exist. They, they talk about a lot of cars in this book. Um, well, not a lot, a handful of cars, but uh, they're they're all over the place in the big cities, and there are some of them around on roads. They're not an unheard of thing. They're not a brand new uh, form of conveyance, but it, it is a little bit past the time of like horse-drawn buggies and mm-hmm. and the such. So there are some. They visit some town. Isaac Bell visits some towns in the West that are a little less developed, but yeah, it's, it's a, the story. Most of the story takes place in 1906. Isaac Bell has a very nice car. The the criminals involved in this drive nice vehicles. Uh, part of it takes place in San Francisco, so there's some cable cars. But yeah, much of the story takes place between Denver and San Francisco. So, so you have two city environments. You might consider, you know, the West tamed. These are developing areas, but they're not, you know, it's it's not all outlaws and bandits. Although that there there are some. Part of the story takes place in Telluride, and they reference that Butch Cassidy tried to rob a bank there and um actually in in real life history yes that did happen and the pinkerton detective agency uh investigated that 
would would now should we jump into uh, the plot? I mean, well, the thing I want to before we touch on the plot, I, I really want to touch on structure and genre. So throughout this whole discussion, I'm always going to be talking about whether or not this is a western, or whether or not this is a noir, or whether or not this is a spy setting. I think it's all three, but I'm, I'm going to bring that question up quite a bit. But beyond that, this is a mystery novel. There is a crime, and there is a detective chasing the criminal. There are there's a lot of different types of mysteries, but mainly there are two types of tellings of mysteries. There's the whodunit, which is m most common. You know, the reader does not know who did it. The detective does not know who did it. And throughout the course of the book, you kind of get to try to figure it out alongside of the protagonist. Um, but there is another type of story, a lot more like uh, Columbo. He popularized this, that uh, the Columbo like television serials. And that is the How Catch'em. You get to witness the crime generally most of the time. You kind of know who's already done it. You kind of know what's happened, and you get to watch the detective figure it out. And you get to figure out, try to figure out ahead of time how he's going to catch them. And that's what's interesting about that style of mystery. Yeah, in in early about a third of the way into the book, Isaac Bell, the the private detective who's been tasked with catching the butcher bandit, who is this bank robber who's robbing banks and killing all the people in the bank across the West, Isaac Bell pretty quickly figures out who this person is that's doing it. I would say by the middle of the book. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, we the reader find out right away before them. Yeah, but you, anyways, you, you get to see the first. Well, not the first. There's been many, but you get to see the inciting incident of the the bank robbery in question. You get to see how it works, how the criminal works, how he kills everyone so there's no witnesses. You see how he gets away, which becomes a big plot point and is also foreshadowed in the opening of the book is how this man gets around. Right, right. And so you kind of see what's going on and then very shortly thereafter find out who he is. And I would say that, in, you know, bringing it to, back to genre, to me that's, you know, Isaac Bell is struggling to find convictable evidence, uh, a way that he can, he can legitimately arrest this guy. And that seems a little anti-Western to me because... I think it seems very contemporary, almost to the point where it doesn't seem realistic. It seems a little more <laughs> spy genre in, the, in that you, you want hard evidence. In a Western, West, uh, a Western uh, story, Isaac Bell would just walk up to this guy and, and shoot him. It's like you're a murderer, yes. but and I think that's also how the Pinkertons would have solved it. <laughs> yeah, I mean they, they, they would have they would have probably done that and then planted a gun on him or something. They would have yeah. they would have arranged it um, so they could. But have gotten yeah, that, so once again, it's not in in that case a western. In a noir, yeah. in a noir, you have some sort of case. A detective gets brought onto it. There's a little bit of a cat and mouse thing. Generally, they figure out who it is, but they have to play against that person and try to figure out a way to stop them or catch them or whatever. Uh, and it feels a lot more like that. You you have you have a, a little bit of a... The characters are very similar, and that goes along with in most noir that, like, the detectives are not generally... It's not, you know, white hat versus black hat. It's a shady person after another shady person. Mm -hmm. And in this story... You have, well, I mean, I guess we'll get into some spoilers, so if you haven't read this book and want to, stop now and read the book. But going forward, we're going to be talking about interesting plot points that are important to the book. So, Isaac Bell comes from banking, and the Butcher Bandit is revealed to also be a banker. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're very similar characters in terms of their background being the same, 
uh, in terms of that they do what they do not because they need to. He doesn't need to rob banks because he has lots of money. Isaac doesn't need to be a detective. He's born into a rich family and could have just inherited banking. So they're both doing what they do for the excitement, for the thrill, and because they enjoy it. So you very much have that, like, we're not so different after all type situation mm -hmm. between the two of them. And that feels a lot more like a noir to me or a spy novel. You have two characters that are equally matched on opposite sides, both of which are clever, both of which can use disguise, which happens a couple times throughout the book, and both of which are refined. They're refined characters. They're not gritty. They're not, I don't want to say lewd. I guess uh, the Butcher Bandit's a little lewd. Well, I wouldn't say he's lewd because it, it, he it, does... He does doesn't really approve he of does, his He doesn't sister. sleep sleep with his employees. Yeah, that's true. He, Which does, is, have, he does have weird boundaries for, for, for a low bar. kills everybody. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to mind what like how his sister behaves and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So we have two characters that are very similar playing a cat and mouse uh, against each other, which I would put into like the terms of like a spy novel. Yeah. There's plenty of action, but there's some intelligence to, to both of them. They, they, uh, they're both brilliant at... One's brilliant at being a detective, the other's fairly brilliant at being a criminal, which was actually... Uh, and a clever banker. And He's actually good at what he does. One of the things that, in researching the Pinkerton specifically, I read was, you know, Alan Pinkerton, who formed the Pinkertons, had various... He wrote a lot about um, criminal theory, criminology, I guess you'd say. He was an early criminologist. It's a great song. And... Is it a song? Criminology? <laughs> yeah, we can't clean it. Oh. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> I feel like now I feel like the dad on dad lit like, hooray oh, success we can go home yeah. <laughs> clan. Um, he, so but one of the things that he wrote about was that the criminal criminals were becoming increasingly sophisticated and intelligent and that the detectives in turn needed to become incredibly sophisticated and intelligent to to capture them and he also wrote a little bit about criminal reform and incarceration and basically said you know for a lot of these criminals if you sent them to jail put them in prison and like reformed them they could be incredibly productive and helpful to society if they use that same sort of intelligence in productive ways which you know i guess it ties into this in that sense that that jacob cromwell the butcher bandit spoiler alert that's who this guy is it's Pro not really that big of spoilers though because it's revealed right away that's what i love about how catchems yeah yeah i i didn't you know and also the the who done it is usually a little bit more kind of emotional and psychologically intense. I'm thinking of like um, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, mm -hmm. where where uh, which was made into Manhunter, and it's like the Will Graham story of him. Yeah, driving. I haven't read that, but I really want to. You the reader as you as the reader you there's passages where you're kind of seeing through the eyes of the killer and you're seeing what he does, but. It, it is it's it's very intense seeing the detective finally find out the identity of that person and it's very emotionally and psychologically intense this one does not have that and this book the chase doesn't have that and that was one critique i had of the character of isaac bell is that he th this mind game that he plays with jacob cromwell he, it's almost too easy for him to kind of figure out cromwell anytime cromwell tries to do something to get him off of his track he kind of it doesn't take very long or it doesn't seem very difficult for him to realize like 
Cromwell would want me to go to Salt Lake City because he's actually going to Bisbee. Like, he, it's almost too easy for him. I do, but I think that comes back to that they're similar people. I do like that the, the moment that they, that he confirms who it is, though. I, I do think it's, I don't think it's emotional in the same way, but... Well, how, how does that happen? I don't recall. So, so, folks listening, we'll just do a, one of the classic Chris Ludwig describes the plot of the book very quickly. Sure. In the not-so-distant future, past 1906, I don't remember what time it's at, uh, they salvage a train out from a lake, and they talk about, I hope the stuff inside is still there. And then we f- f- backtrack to the past to see what happened and how that train got there. And you open with the riverboat that I talked about and Isaac Bell being introduced. He's given a mission to find and uh, stop this notorious bank robber that has been killing it to everybody that sees him. So there's no witnesses. They don't have any idea what this guy looks like. And he's employed, the, the Van Dorn agency is employed by this Colonel Henry Danzler. That's him. He's the director of the U.S. government's criminal investigation department. There's an interesting historical note that, you know, yeah, the, the Pinkertons, similarly, they would receive contracts from the government. In fact, there was a congressional allotment when, um, I think it was the Department of Justice was first made, that they, they, the government, federal government understood, we don't have the manpower or infrastructure for this yet. So let's seek out private contracts for people to do this. And um, that's what the Pinkertons did. And in this case, you know, the the Department of Justice doesn't, the FBI didn't exist yet. So it would make sense that they'd hire a detective to do this. Yeah. Um, and the Van Dorn Detective Agency, very much unlike the Pinkertons, does a lot of fine upstanding work throughout the novels. And they're often hired by different people. It's one of the things that's interesting. They're not always working for the government. They're not always working for a private function. One of the books are working for a newspaper magnate. Um, one of the books they're doing like protective work for somebody it's interesting that the books vary in their subject matter very wildly that's why I love them anyways back to the the quick recap so uh, Isaac takes to the case and goes off to the uh, Denver field office and meets the horrible head detective there and starts working during that time another bank robbery happens and they go to investigate those as they start that case, the public takes to calling the bank robber the Butcher Bandit for how violent he is, and word gets back to the Butcher Bandit that the Van Dorn Detective Agency has begun an investigation on him. The main detective, Isaac Bell, is approached by a femme fatale. Once again, we got some noir elements here. Mm, red hair. Uh, also, yeah, red hair. Uh, also kind of some spy elements, because there's definitely femme fatales in spy stories. And as she utilizes her sexuality a lot to go undercover in, in, in one Yeah, her instance, sexuality and, is, yeah. is um, brought up a lot in this book. In multiple ways. Um, <laughs> I think she's a very interesting character. And she's definitely the more, like, dad lady representation of women and things and the other female character is very chaste and uh wholesome, wholesome. in a traditional yeah. sense of you know and definitely in an old west sense yeah it doesn't reveal too much skin i love that they bring that up the sensibilities at the time so anyways this person that has approached isaac is actually the sister of the butcher bandit jacob cromwell her name is margaret cromwell yeah but she goes by the under the name rose manteca yeah, Which definitely, I thought was definitely a, not a fake name at I all. Know. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is ridiculous. Um, and I, everyone that they talk to kind of seems that too. People are like, I've never heard of a Rose Monteca. 
So she kind of gets some information on the, the case and on Isaac and returns to her brother. Isaac teams up with a couple of detectives in the area and they go from location to location investigating the the previous incidents. Yeah, there are two uh, sort of uh, junior investigators in the Denver office who he really likes and speaks highly of. I guess Isaac Bell has worked with them in the past. Uh, Arthur Curtis, who's this sort of short and stout guy, and Glenn Irvine, who's this tall and uh, narrow guy. I thought it was they were kind of a fun little uh, duo there. And they investigate a few things. They investigate the bank bills that were stolen to see if there's any record of those bills being marked or any sort of um, information on the specific numbers on them, which they do find that there that those did exist. Um, they were the numbers on the bills were marked down because they were 50s and higher, which were apparently pretty rare. So yeah, the banks marked the stolen bill or recorded the stolen bills, and the numbers of the train cars that were moving through the towns at those days. Because one of the strange things is that these robberies are occurring kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So one question is, how is this guy getting in and out of town? And they suspect maybe he's it has something to do with the train service. So one of yeah, the detectives so is, is it, investigating the train numbers. And in fact, the butcher bandit does employ a train to escape. He, however, as the junior detective finds out that he's not leaving on passenger trains, he is probably leaving on a freight train. And the butcher bandit has a freight car that he has purchased and has been using or stolen and is using that he has more or less made official by certain manipulations of serial numbers. And he travels by a Harley-Davidson motorcycle that he drives right up into the freight car and then leaves on the freight train. And it's marked as O'Hara Furniture Company. But on the inside, it is like a five-star hotel suite. He has a kitchen in there. He has like well, cigars. He has, to, he has to live in it. Yeah, for a while. And he's a rich man. He needs it to be nice. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very lavish, uh, lavish thing. So... You know, kind of a romantic lifestyle almost, like, you know, traveling in a really luxurious train car, getting out, robbing a bank, and riding a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. It should be noted that I think at this time... There were six, I think, if the, I remember correctly. I was researching it, and it's like early Harley-Davidsons look like, kind of like like a hipster electric bike. Like, they look like bicycles with a little motor on them. They're not, they're not the big, yeah, they're you like know, a cafe. hogs. They're yeah. Like a, yeah, they're like a cafe bike. But uh, it's a 1905 Harley-Davidson motorcycle. New technology. And like I said, when I was pitching this book to you, a lot of the interesting aspect of it is like a spy novel for the time period. It's the technology that isn't widely used at the time yeah. or um, stuff that's fancy and new to the people in the book, but not necessarily to the reader. See, I remember it differently. I remember me pitching this book to you, uh, but whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, who's read them all? <laughs> all right so uh the bank robberies basically go down with him going into the bank in some sort of disguise that he's used several of to scout out the banks and find out what he needs to do to get the robbery pulled off then he goes in commits the the robbery kills everyone that sees him gets on his motorcycle drives off to the train gets onto the train and is pulled away never to be seen again in that's that place so they have no id for him they have uh, no idea what his motives are, and so that's what they're investigating. And the first big lead is that that he's using freight trains. Yeah, that's that's kind of the biggest like break in the case. At some point, someone says they they think the guy is missing a f like part of his finger. Um, there's small clues that are peppered around, yeah. but really, a boy the... a boy playing a ball game sees him and 
comments on the color of the hair and that he looked like he was missing a finger. Yeah, but the, the, the train car element is really what leads Isaac Bell. Like, I mean, that's like the strongest clue that and he has. And it leads has. them to how they are going to trap this man, which leads me to the scene that I wanted to talk about. So they uh, decide that they're going to try to set up a uh, enticing bank robbery for him. Yeah, so they track that train car back to San Francisco. And so there's a, a, a possibility that the person is from San Francisco. So they want to find out if he's from San Francisco or not and see if they can capture him. So they release a news story in San Francisco about a bunch of banknotes being moved and uh, that they're going to be moved through uh, Teller, Telluride. Telluride, yeah. Um, and they, the Butcher Bandit has robbed a few mining towns. So, you know, the Butcher Bandit understands that, you know, on payday, there's a lot of cash in those banks. So that's kind of his MO. He, he robs banks at really opportune times. And that's what the news statement says, is that a lot of money is going to be moved through this mining town. So it's, it's bait. Yeah, they bait him. Yeah. And so there's a few hiccups, but we're not going to go into too much of the detail. He does fall for the bait, and he shows up, but they don't uh, they don't recognize him, or in that fact, in fact, his sister. Yeah, she goes ahead to kind of scout out the 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 town. Yeah, and previous to this, the butcher bandit had already used his sister to get information on Isaac, and even even hired a, a mobster to try to take him out. Mm -hmm. That was unsuccessful, and so here we are. Butcher Bandit, in full disguise as a woman, walks into um, the Telluride Bank and goes to start his bank robbery. But as he turns around, Isaac Bell steps out of the, the office. And at this point of the story, they had already met over a table where um, Bell had uh, recognized Mrs. Mantega mm -hmm. and found out that uh, this man was actually... Uh, his brother or her brother and yeah. that they are some wealthy bankers or whatever. Yeah, and it, and it, he, he'd also tracked some of the stolen bills to Jacob Cromwell's bank. Jake, Jacob so, Cromwell yeah. owns a bank. So, so I, I guess we should say they've already met twice yeah. previous to this in the book. But and he so hadn't know stuck what he out too much as a, as a suspect to Isaac Bell was my understanding. Correct. They didn't, They he never, which is part of the story is that you never suspect the owner of a wealthy bank to be a bank robber. And he do, he does ask so uh, Isaac Bell goes on a date with Jacob Cromwell's secretary uh, Marion Morgan, who they develop a relationship over the course of the story. Um, actually, end up getting engaged. Spoiler: yeah, they become but, they become a couple throughout all of the books. But he does take Marion out to dinner, and the first time he asks a lot of questions about Jacob Cromwell. So it seems it it would be inaccurate for, to say he's not. He's suspicious. He's suspicious of Cromwell, but he thinks it's a long shot. Yeah, but as you said, they, Jacob Cromwell walks into the bank. He's in disguise. The two see each other, and, and they're the, like, and, "Oh and, shit!" And Bell. This is the part that I like. That is sort of that like confirmation on Bell's part that this is the robber and that it is Jacob Cromwell, and uh, confirmation on Cromwell's part that this is a trap and that. Um, he's been had because he'd suspected that it might be a trap. And there's a point where Isaac walks out and just points at him and says, you! And yes, then there's yeah. a gunfight and Isaac Bell is shot, believed dead. Right. And one of the investigators he brings with him, I really like this character. Maybe it's because I just like tall, skinny characters. I always just like imagine them as like... It... Uh, folks at home, uh, Connor is a tall, skinny character. I'm not that, <laughs> I'm not that tall and skinny. I mean, I just have, I've got... 
I'm I have long arms and long legs. I that's get, what a tall skinny person would say. I have I I've realized that being my height and my weight that one can affect the the being tall and not being tall. What, what are you saying? You slouch. I'm saying if you can you can you can give the impression of tallness without being tall. Are you trying to tell me that you're not tall? Uh, I'm, okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> So the guy, Glenn Irvine, um, uh, who's one of the Denver investigators, goes with uh, Isaac Bell to Telluride to, to do this bait operation, this kind of sting. I don't know if it's... I was thinking about it. Is this a sting? Yeah, I think it counts as a sting. But So Glenn Irvine gets shot at close range, like right in the chest, and it seems like he dies immediately. I thought that... I was kind of sad. I'm like, oh, I liked him. He seemed like a good, like... You know, like in the Clive Cussler books, he has those, um, who would, like, who's the guy we've talked about that we both like? Rudy Gunn. Yeah, it's like, you don't want to see someone so, like that get killed. So here's the thing about these books. I was going to bring this up, too, in terms of structure in regards to Cussler books. Most of the Cussler books, uh, the Dirk Pitt series, the Kurt Austin series, the Fargo Adventures, um, certainly the Oregon Files, they all have a uh, central cast. They all have the main character, his best friend or sidekick, and then the supporting cast. And that doesn't change throughout most of those books. These books are a little different in that you have the main character, Isaac Bell. There's generally no sidekick. There are a couple of characters that you could count in future books as a sidekick. Um, but in this book, he doesn't have one. But there is a rotating cast of detectives, depending on what part of the country he's in. They introduce new detectives in each book, but some of them will return if he returns to those parts of the country or if they need those expertise. So, like, one of them in the future books is, like, a disguise expert, and that's the closest I could count as a uh, as a sidekick. He shows up quite a bit. He's, like, a, a, a dandy. Um, that's a cool character type, though, expert of disguise. I like, yeah, yeah. I love... I would say that in... So they're not in that book, this book, but Dad Lit Checklist, I might categorize that as like a hyper specialized technician character type well certainly cromwell is one well he's a master of disguise he oh he absolutely is yeah uh, he so is. yeah anyways um and then there's like other um detectives that they introduce in other books that are returning characters but they never they're never full-time characters and i would say that's a, a specialty of this book is that they have that like non-central cast yeah um don't get too attached to anyone that, that is true. Mm -hmm. Several of them die in those other books, so I'm sorry if you have hyper-specialized uh, characters that you like, Connor. Yeah. Especially if they're tall. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, so, okay, so after that, he so Bell gets shot, and Cromwell thinks that he has killed Isaac Bell, and he flees Telluride, and he does... With the help of his sister, his who sister. is freaking out. But he tells her, like, just chill, listen, we're just two ladies out for a, a horse and buggy ride and they ride a horse and buggy out of town and part of uh, part of the concern about the telluride sting and and, and and cromwell was concerned about it too was like i can't use the train car to get out of there and that is tracks. because in the mountains of uh colorado. telluride yeah. in colorado they use a narrow gauge track mm -hmm. rather than the standard size track that is used in the rest of the country so you have to have a completely different type of train car and he's not going to go and get a completely new type of train car before this. Yeah, but he, he they escape. They do escape. He, he comes up with a different escape plan, and it does work. So that kind of falls on its head. But in the recovery from this, Isaac is not dead. 
Isaac has a, a confirmation on who the Butcher Bandit is and where he is because they know where his bank is uh, stationed back in San Francisco. He knows that Cromwell thinks he's dead, so they are going to use that to their advantage. And so uh, he goes back to San Francisco, recovers, and uh, does two things. One, he hits up the secretary, Marion Morgan, and decides to risk letting her know that he's still alive. She might tell her boss. She might not go along with uh, Isaac, but he risks it. And she swoons for him and falls for him, and they start a little bit of a relationship. He does this by picking her up in the other thing that he does. <laughs> he ships from his home in Chicago a, a bright red locomobile automobile. Uh, yeah. It's um, so earlier on, I, before we forget this, before we get to locomotive, he does ride like a really fancy motorcycle through the streets of Denver. One that, like, I, I don't think they give the make and model of it. But he has to like, like lean. It says he has to basically lean on it horizontally. He, he does later when discussing the motorcycle with Cromwell. I think okay. Some, somebody has a motorcycle discussion later on, and he mentions the model very briefly. But the the locomobile. This is like the feature. I mean, the, the title I of this book. I would not is, be yeah. surprised if people at home have never heard of a locomobile because I had not before I read these books. It sounds made up. It does, <laughs> and it also sounds like a train, which it is not. Yeah, and the the again, you know, the title is the chase. I would say that the chase involving the locomobile race car is the titular chase, even though there's another chase at the end. Yeah. But the locomobile, okay. So here's the history that we're given of it, and this is what Bell says in the book. It was driven by Joe Tracy, who was a real race car driver, in the 1905 Vanderbilt Cup race in Long Island, uh, which he won. It was the winning vehicle. And we learn, you know, throughout the course of the book, we learn about the functions of the of the vehicle. We learn about the cylinder system. You know, uh, um, it's, this is again Custler kind of being a tech nerd. And he talks about you know the way the cylinders work, how the fuel injection system works, um, which we'll, I guess we can talk about that more when we get to the chase. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so he picks up uh, Marion Morgan in this uh, beautiful red car, and it draws a bunch of attention from everyone around the street. Uh, it's definitely something you want to do when you're thought dead, right? Uh, I'm well, surprised that that doesn't get around. <laughs> that there's not like a newspaper picture of man in fancy car pulls up and swoons girl off her feet. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to say, you know, if you want to impress a girl by picking her up in a, in a nice car, you know, that's something to do, sure. But not when you're trying to keep a low profile. But if you want to impress a girl that already had a crush on you, definitely make her think you're dead and then show up like a fucking spectral apparition. Yeah. Um, there's gotta we got that is like we have to come up with a name for that like there's such like you know yeah it's called like pulling a bell oh when we get pulling a bell where yeah. you're thought dead but, yeah, yeah it's when you're in a relationship and you're thought dead because of a botched bank robbery and you actually aren't dead and you show up in a nice car i don't i mean i know you're joking but i think we could add something to the checklist of like a thought dead thought yes I am literally adding it. You can no, no, he's he's writing it. I can see it. I can for once see him doing something. <laughs> he's in the room with me. But yeah, I think thought dead is a good one for the checklist. I think that happens uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, so he gets her help. She agrees to help give him any sort of information. And that pays off because basically right after uh, Jacob gets home, he talks to his sister and he's like, I'm going to do it again. She's like, what? We don't need to keep robbing these banks. You almost got caught this time. You almost got killed this time. And he's like, yes, but wh what better time when the lead detective is dead and there's no one to chase me? 
they have nothing on me i assure you and so he plans another daring bank robbery and this time he leaves town under the guise of going to like a bankers conference right yeah and he lets his secretary know of course that he's going to this conference uh so she then lets that on to uh isaac and he leaves town and gives the detectives the 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 slip by doing the 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 whole classic move of getting onto a train walking right off the other side of the train and onto a different train brilliant yeah brilliant (laughs) i mean it's like it's like the subway car hustle right you get on a subway and then you you slip off right before the detective can and the doors close and it goes off and you get on a different train (laughs) it's literally a classic move so he he goes to san diego i yeah i think yes he's i think it's he's going to san diego he wants to rob something a little closer to home i've i seem to remember which is another part where his sister's like are you crazy you're gonna do something in your own state like it's 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 too risky and so when the detective comes back and tells bell that that he lost him um bell decides that he's gonna go after him in his bright red locomobile yeah and he he brings uh this character horace bronson with him who is, uh, he is technically, I have his title here, he is the district director of Van Dorn's San Francisco office. He's kind of described as this sort of big, handsome, burly kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, he's got a forest of blonde hair, a very broad person. Yeah. Um, um, not much more than that. And I, like I say, you're very fond of this character, but in terms of like the, the rotating cast, uh, he's not very distinct. But we'll see what happens when we do the cast-off later, who sure. we pick for Horace Bronson. He does return in other stories. He's a, a, a returning character. Yeah, I. Um, he gets in the car with uh, with Belle, and they're, they're off. And this is one, one of the chases, I think, the big bigger I chase. I think it's really... Yeah. It's a very interesting set piece, if you're going to call it that, because they do a lot of different things in this car along the way that both shows how the car works back then, what kind of troubleshooting and problems you run into... And just kind of like the situation, and it's a pretty interesting chase yeah. for a chase in which you never really see the person you're chasing. You just know the timetable that you have to catch up to somebody. Yeah. What? What? So just to give you an image, like they're wearing like driving caps. Uh, I think. I think. Um, and goggles. Uh, Bell is in jodhpurs. Yeah. And a leather jacket. With mm-hmm. goggles. Yeah. I don't remember what Horace is wearing, but it's he, much more normal. Because he, he doesn't have a fucking car to drive. And there's, there's no windshield on the vehicle. Correct. So they're, co- like, they get covered in mud and they're... And wind filled. and soot and... Yeah. But that's, you know, the image I think people probably can conjure in their mind. Like a big scarf, you know, blowing out the back of the Absolutely. car. Absolutely. But what, what struck me the most about this, um, which I thought it was well, well done about this chase, is, like, Kussler gives a does a good job at, at, at conveying that they're taking the vehicle like to its limit because if you look at a picture of this car it's pretty delicate looking i mean you it's would, a race car yeah race cars are not durable they're driving this thing over dirt roads at one point he actually kind of has to, like drive off the road and kind of i i thought he crashed it but he like Down drives over yeah into the water over the other side the other side and you just get um, the sense that the car is going to fall apart or snap in half at, at uh, some point uh, and sometimes it sort of does so like they they go through a couple of wheels and when like at one point they go over a rocky patch and they talk about like a sharp rock getting wedged in the tire and it, it uh, leaking air to flat um, but what's interesting is during this chase um you have bell uh, uh 
as like like a man possessed at the wheel. They uh, Horace is all like it's always sort of from Horace's point of view, and he talks about looking at Bell and the expression on his face and how determined he looks. Um, and he's never seen another man so determined for anything in his life. Uh, I mean, I know I'm that way when I'm late to something, <laughs> but. Uh, while Bell is driving, most of the time, Horace is repairing tires. Right. He's, like, he's yeah, giving he's him a, a patch yeah. kit, and he takes the spare and puts the spare on. They have several spares, and he'll hand them the, the damaged wheel. They'll take off, and he'll be patching it on the way. It's a good partnership. I mean, Bell wouldn't really be able to do that on his own. I, I almost get like the impression of like a cross-country like car race, where you have like a gear that you need with you, and you have a partner, yeah. and the partner does support work. Yeah, or like a bicycle race where people, that's a little different, but people have like trucks following them with like... Support stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spare parts. Um, And Bronson is also uh, pumping, there's a gas tank. There's no gas gauge. I thought that was kind of interesting. There's no gas gauge or speedometer. They talk about that. that, And once again, that's like the discussion of like new technology that he puts into these books that we would just laugh at because it's something that's normal and regular in our everyday life. But they do a good job with it. And I think it kind of speaks like the intelligence and of the, of the character Isaac Bell and like how Isaac Bell is kind of a piece of Clive Cussler and that he is like a, a, te- a, a, a car expert, you know, Clive Cussler, he's passed away, but he's famously a collector. collector. Yeah. But that, you know, Isaac Bell can like, he can estimate at what speed he they're traveling they're going, at, yeah. and like okay, versus what the train could go. So there's all all these kind of like little moments where they're trying to like maybe it's like 15 minutes ahead of us, 30 minutes. Um, well, and they talk about that at one point they think they've got it up to almost 100 miles an hour, which I think is ridiculous. I mean, it's a, it is a race car, but driving on dirt road though. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and then they talk at the end of it that they for when they f- do finally figure out what time it is, then when they get there, they do a little bit of quick math, and he thinks that they average like 60 miles per hour. Yeah. And so when they eventually find the train, basically, like, as it's pulling, or is it just pulled into this station? Um, it's already pulled in, and uh, they see the, the 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 car in question and people, a person getting out of that car and onto a, a motorcycle. Well, they're, they're, you see people removing a motorcycle, yeah. like, unloading it. And Isaac Bell basically goes for broke at that point and, like, drives up onto the tracks, which basically is that destroys the car it does yeah but he shows up and kind of like you know slides in slides into home and uh literally just kind of just walks up on him yeah and is like you're under arrest and you know cromwell can't believe he's alive for one thing um and that he has the balls that he shows up here finds him out of the blue uh and then who else can't believe it is the 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 train the train station employee yeah he he uh I, i this is one part i wanted to read I thought it just has a very nice dad liddy quality to it. So the car is is wrecked, and um, uh, Bell has arrested Cromwell. The the train conductor, one of the train station managers, looks at the wrecked car on the tracks, and this is what he says: "How in God's name did that derelict come to be on the tracks in front of my engine?" "It's a long story," said Bell wearily. "What's going to happen to it?" Bell spoke quietly, almost reverently. It's going to be shipped back to the factory in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where where it will be rebuilt until it is as good as new. Fix this wreck, said the engineer, shaking his head. Why bother? Bell looked at the locomobile with a loving expression in his eyes and said, because she deserves it. I thought that really stuck out to me. That's how a car person <laughs> talks about their car. Yeah, and you know, like, I'm not a big car person. I, I, don't, I don't know what... 
I don't know what kind of person I am, but I'm not a car person. But I, I kind of respected that at that point. You know, I'm like, yeah, this car is like, it's gone the limit for them. And you've mentioned that that car appears in other books, right? Oh, yeah, yes. Um, in fact, my favorite introduction uh, to the characters in the story comes from um, The Race, which is probably my favorite of the, the Isaac Bell books. And um, once again, there's like a, a couple scenes before this, before they introduce Isaac in the book. But the introduction, I'm going to read from The Race now. Sorry, people, we're covering two books now. Isaac Bell, chief investigator of the Van Dorn Detective Agency, thundered up San Francisco's Market Street in a fire uh, engine red gasoline-powered locomobile racer with its exhaust cut out wide open for maximum power. Bell was a tall man of 30 with a thick mustache that glowed as golden as his precisely groomed blonde hair. He wore an immaculate white suit and a low-crowned white hat with a wide brim. His frame was whipcord lean. As he drove, his boots, well-kept and freshly polished, rarely touched the brake, an infamously ineffective uh, locomobile accessory, which they talk about in this, too, that the brakes hardly work. Mm -hmm. His long hands and fingers moved nimbly between throttle and shifter. His eyes, ordinarily a compelling violet shade of blue, were dark with consternation. A no-nonsense expression and a determined set of his jaw were tempered by a grin of pure pleasure as he raced the auto at breakneck speed, overtaking trolleys, trucks, horse carts, motorcycles, and slow automobiles. In the red leather passenger seat to Isaac Bell's left sat the boss, Joseph Van Dorn, the burly, red-whiskered founder of the nationwide detective agency, was a brave man feared across the continent as the scourge of criminals, but he turned pale as Bell aimed the big machine at the dwindling space between a coal wagon and a Buick motor truck stacked to the rails with tins of kerosene and naphtha. We're actually on time, Van Dorn remarked, even a little early. Isaac Bell did not appear to hear him. With relief, Van Dorn saw their destination looming over its shorter neighbors. Preston Whitley's 12-story San Francisco Inquirer building. Uh, you can go on, but the, the point is uh, they introduce this, both of those characters in this book in that car, and it, it's great because uh, if you've read the books leading up to it, Van Dorn is a no-nonsense. Nothing can scare him, man, and he's scared as Bell is driving this car. <laughs> this, this makes me think of, of something that we can add to the checklist. Maybe we need to kind of finesse it a little bit, but like... Um, uh, pairing a, a technological um, partnering of a of a character like like in the Bond movies more in like I'm thinking in the in the movie um, Goldfinger him and the Aston Martin like there there's a sort of character pairing with a car but this is I think that's definitely a dadlet thing yeah yeah um, and this is a, this is a perfect example well and if I was to point out two things that were common throughout all of the Isaac Bell books it's his car and his gun and his hat. Yeah, I was thinking like too of like the the PPK in Bond, yeah, or um, the um, the uh, the whip with James with Indiana item. Jones, yes, a signature item, yeah. signature item or signature item including vehicle. Yeah. Um, okay, so at this point he's arrested. Well, he hasn't really arrested him fully yet. They're going, aren't they? At this point, after he confronts him, after the car is wrecked, they're going to take him back to San Francisco. They talk about this that um, there's not really evidence except that bell says that he can't of his right mind wait for the evidence like if they wait for him to commit another crime there's a chance of more people getting hurt or murdered so bell jumps the gun and kind of just arrests him on the spot under the guise of 
uh, I have you for attempted murder. You shot me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Cromwell makes the point, and like, well, listen, it's it's my word versus yours. And, yeah, no uh, one, else, no, there were no other witnesses alive. Yeah, and Cromwell is very, he's socially powerful. He he donates to a lot of charities. He's he's just very influential in the city. So, and so they they do technically arrest him. And they, um, they they figure that he could get out with his fancy lawyers, but they're going to risk it because um, it's worth risking. So they, they get him on his own train car, I believe, and they take him back to San Francisco. And during the ride, there's the, the villain and hero discussion um, where they play that verbal cat and mouse. And he's uh, Cromwell's very careful to not incriminate himself more, but only barely. He's, he's very... Uh, what's the term I would use? Um, foolhardy in the way he talks about everything. Um, yeah, he, arrogant. He, yeah. He's very arrogant. He can't, because he wants to take credit for this. He wants to, you know, he to be acknowledged as brilliant. Well, he's also an entitled rich guy that knows he's going to get away with it. Yeah, so there is a lot of that, like, well, if I was to do this, I would have been such a brilliant, you know, the best plan ever, ever laid. Yeah, and, um, and I didn't do this, so therefore all of my lawyers will get me off of the blah, 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 blah. And so um, they do get back. They do put him in custody. Do you remember where they take him? I don't understand. Don't they take him to Alcatraz? They take him to, I think they take him to Alcatraz. I don't remember that being mentioned. I feel like I would remember if that was the case. They, I'm sure they did because that's probably what was being used at the time. Also, did you know Alcatraz means pelican? <laughs> beat me to that. Um, they bring <laughs> to that's intertextuality. That's a good example. That is some intertextuality. Um, they bring him to Alcatraz and uh, sorry, you said you were going to do the synopsis, but I, the, the reason I'm kind of I, we've kind of gone off synopsis sorry. anyway. We're yeah. The reason. So they bring him there, and he ends up getting the attention of the warden, and basically bribing him and saying, "Hey, listen, I'm giving you. I'll give you like a couple a, thousand bucks, a, a ton of money. Yeah, but and it's not for him to necessarily like be released. It's it's like hand me over to my lawyer, kind of. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's like an unofficial um, bail. Yeah, yeah. Like he, that's what he how he frames. He's it. like, I'm not gonna leave town. I'm not getting out of this, but I would like to not be on in custody." So just get me out of the jail, and uh, I don't think they are at Alcatraz because they drive away. No, but I, you you may be right, but they drive through a a, a gate. gate yeah. But I'm okay. All right, we'll have to we'll come back to that. <laughs> uh, but it's, no, it is not Alcatraz because they talk about it's um, San Quentin. Yeah, because yes, okay. they talk about the history of the name of San Quentin. That's right. It's named after like a famous prisoner that was there. But they put San in front of it, which is like the the male version of Saint. Yeah, exactly. All right. So it's in a famous prison. Uh, I, Alcatraz. I don't think Al. I don't you know. just wanted to mention Pelican. It's fine. That's right. Um, um, so yeah, the warden agrees to it. They put him in uh, again a lady's clothes, and which is fine because he probably showed up that. Well, I don't know. They probably took all that outfit off of him before they got there. But he just got done masquerading as a girl. Now he's back masquerading as a girl, and uh, they they slip him by some suspicious guards they get him out of the city and when bell and them find out they are incredulous and yeah it's outrageous that that happened but they should have seen it coming and the because they they put him there because i think horace bronson knows the warden and is like 
I, he's above reproach. He's above yeah. reproach. He's unbribable, and but you can see how he's manipulated. He doesn't seem like a very like intelligent or or like um, virtuous person, but he doesn't seem like he's not he's not sort of like slimy bribable. But there's also it's also hey we just arrest a very rich very upstanding in the community uh, banker who donates uh, to a lot of things. He's a philanthropist. He doesn't seem like he would be a bank robber, and also we don't really have solid proof that he's a bank robber. Yeah. So this this guy uses all of that to convince the the warden to let him go. Like, hey, I'm being hold up, held under false pretenses. Let me get to my lawyers, um, and I'll pay you handsomely within the hour. Yeah, that that's a big part of it. He's like, you know, as soon as you drop me off, there's going to be money coming, you know, coming your way. Yeah. So they, this is this is what happens next. We'll talk about that in a second. This is a good time to take a break. Dadlet will be right back after a word from our generous sponsor. So, so the only reason any of this works is because, so this is when Bell is like incredulous and goes, what day is it? Um, and we get a very, very specific, uh, time, day and date. And the detective that delivers, it seems like he's like joking, like, haha, you forgot what day it is. It's this date on this time of this year. But that's so that the reader can maybe understand what year it is and what happens because, uh, as they're going to try to go arrest him again uh there is a natural disaster this is the um april 18th 1906 san francisco earthquake i believe that the epicenter was like in san francisco and it 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 devastates the city um buildings collapse bell is actually in bed with marion marion not in in bed well they are they're actually in a bed together they are in the bed together finish their bedroom business Sure, because it, it was like, but, but okay, so they're in bed and the wall like fall like collapses like, um, uh, and they're kind of exposed. I, I mean, they, I don't want to give the impression that they're like they stand up naked and people look at them, but like the house kind of falls apart. Um, the city is devastated um, in ridiculous ways. They go into really realistic and and and, and special like especially gruesome details. Some of it of like uh, all of the like um, 
freight wagons and horses and things that are crushed from falling buildings and debris and all of the um, different people who have fallen through buildings and out into the street. Um, yeah. her, her piano ends up in the street and uh, it just gets worse from there because they then and the did you think it was funny how much they kept foreshadowing something that happened in the next scene like what the book the book multiple times goes and this wasn't even the worst of it uh or a much bigger disaster was about to occur and then like the next paragraph was about the fire that starts right yeah they're they're, they're, that's they keep upping the ante the fires are the really destructive part um, interestingly enough, they're in the Chicago fires. Um, the, the, was they the referenced that too. That um, Pinkertons were deployed to secure property during that. It's just interesting. Historical. Which is what they do in, in this. I really, I really do get the impression that this was written right after Clive Cussler read the entire history of the Pinkertons, because a lot of the stuff that happens in this uh, directly. Uh, is mirrored by things that happened with the Pinkertons. Yeah, well, well, there's even the... There's lines about, like, the cases that made Van Dorn Detective Agency famous. Sure. I I, I read a a book in preparation for this, and perhaps after we're done talking about this novel, I'll do do a very quick book report. Yes, Um, please. I'm excited, (laughs) because I also did very mild research into that when we started discussing this aspect of this story. One th- one thing about this sequence here, the earthquake, uh, that bothered me, or th- th- it didn't bother me, I mean, it, it disturbed me. Um, so, Bell figure Bell is trying to make his way to um, Cromwell's bank, because he thinks that's where Cromwell's going to go. Um, and he's making his way across the city, and that's how we kind of get this tour of all the devastation. And at one point, him and a few other people find this woman. Oh yeah, she's like pinned underneath like a, a like a block or something is pinned like her a column, her. I think, or something. Right, and and the the fire is getting closer, and they're trying to move it, and they're trying to save her, and she's obviously very scared. And then finally, the fire like catches her because she's wearing like bed clothes, so yeah. like it starts burning and things. Yeah, she gets set on fire, and before she can really like ignite and suffer. Um, Bell takes out his pistol and shoots her. Uh, I think he shoots her in the chest, and basically Mercy kills her. And one of the, you know, it's a very somber moment, and he's about to leave. And one of the people, just a stranger, who like, you know, uh, in this scene, there's a lot of strangers helping strangers. The stranger's like, you know, you did the right thing. And Bell says something along the lines of like, yeah, but it was the right thing to do, but it will haunt me for the rest of my life. Yep. So you know, he's not, um, uh, you know unimpacted by this he's he's he he's is very, affected he's, by an, it. he's an affected character we talked yeah. about how there's a very emotional scene where he dis- discovers the villain but he's a very emotional character and that's one of the things i really like about him is his he's he seems very pure and honorable and emotional in the ways that uh, a strong male character can be he doesn't feel as cowboyy as dirk pitt does which is ironic because he's in the west so it's, he has the right to be more of a cowboy but He's much more of a gentleman than Dirk Pitt is. Yeah, he he is. Um, he yeah, he's a, a a gentleman a gentleman detective. He yeah. he can function in the West, but but even with that stern gentlemanliness, they still make him a very emotional character, and I like that. Yeah. Um, and during the uh, the earthquake, another agent um, dies. We learn this a little bit later on, but Arthur Curtis, the the other guy, so, sort of minor agent, the short and stout one dies in the earthquake but he ends up making it to the san francisco office where he meets up with horace bronson 
and that's where we learn that a lot of the Van Dorn agents are out basically like trying to keep order on the streets. And that's um, what Isaac went there to do was to establish that. He tells Marion, I've got to go because I've got to make sure that the agency is dispatched to assist. Mm -hmm. And also, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this well, whole, I think the whole earthquake thing is ridiculous. I understand that it happened. And I think, I really think this was put into the story because when either when Custler did research for the time period and decided to put it in this time or whether or not he was writing it and then learned that this happened during this time. So, yeah. It felt like he was... <laughs> it, do, it does... I will say this does cement this book in the realm of historic fiction. Yes. And that's, you know... Yes. Historical yeah. fiction is a weird, flimsy thing where you, 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 you have to have some history in it for it to be historical, but it's also fiction. And I've read some other historical fiction that I could barely consider historical. Well, you, the, a lot of dad lit might be like that. I'm, I'm trying well, to think of like, it you know, in, in a so lot... my example, um, Pirate Latitudes by Michael Crichton, one of the books that was um, published posthumously, yeah. is historical literature. It says that on the back of the book, historical literature, and it, it like was marketed as historic literature. And it's like, it doesn't have any history in it. It's about pirates and it's realistic literature about pirates. And it's very realistic to like the time period and places and stuff, but there are no notable events or things in it that I would consider historical. Well, what, so there's history. It is certainly historically set fiction. It is That's set, what it is. But it, you know, what I think, what I thought of, okay, we should talk about what we're, what we're talking about is that a very um, famous writer shows up in this scene is that um, when 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 Bell gets to this the, the field van, office, the field yeah. office uh, Jack London is there. Yeah, it's really out of nowhere. Just he even turns Isaac. This is Jack London, the writer. I know. It, <laughs> it, it kind of surprised. I was a little bit surprised that the the weirdest cameo in a book ever. <laughs> well, well, I'm not even going to say that because there's many of the times where Clive Cussler will just show up in one of the Dirk Pitt books that feel like the weirdest cameo in a book. There is a reference to like a, a like big gold Cussler in this book is like a criminal name they just kind of rattle off and but no, but just... yeah, but this this arrival of this real life person. He's, you know, no, Jack London wrote Call of the Wild, uh, short, a lot of short stories, uh, Love of Life, or I think it's called Love of Life. It's a good short story. Maybe I'll post a link to it. Yeah, you know, White Fang. But apparently, so this really happened. Collier's Magazine uh, contacted London, uh, London shortly after the earthquake and dispatched him to San Francisco and said, we want you to cover this. And shortly after the earthquake, not the minute. Oh, it is like it is just ha it is like been like two hours since since the the earthquake. But I guess you could have, depending on where he was at the time, you could have gotten there. Yeah, but forty miles out, he lived forty miles outside the city, is what what I read. But he was there. I mean, I, again, it in 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 his coverage of it, which I'll link to on our Instagram page, he does describe like the sort of atrocities we read about in this. He the, like the raw violent. I mean, it, it, that's probably very well what Custler used for subject matter. Like that's what he researched. I I read it and I was looking for a um, what I thought might be in it would be uh, the chronicle of that woman being shot because that seems like something directly like yeah. that happened. And I, I it wasn't in there, but I wonder if that comes from another historical account. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of writing about this subject, but I I would guess that that comes from some historical research. It seems too too detailed, detailed. Yeah, too specific but again i don't I, this is just an example of like i want to say Cussler can't help himself but 
but he I, because that that makes it sound like a bad thing like he can't help himself but like I, I would have done the same thing though if I was yeah. writing a, if I was writing a book that took place in 1906 and I decided it was taking place in 1906 and then I discovered that there was a famous earthquake in it I would absolutely deviate and cover that earthquake almost in like a, a reporter's sense mm-hmm. of like I, I have the responsibility of describing this accurately and like making it an event it just feels so much of an aside to the story that's going on it is um it is significant to the plot in some ways it's significant in that, in that it hinders the like rearrest it is a speed bump yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's, pretty big speed i would doesn't call it, it sound insensitive yeah it's, it's not a speed bump <laughs> it's a hurdle it's more than a hurdle even i would say it derailed yes well because because now he has to the, the infrastructure of the city is devastated so i do love yeah. the cromwell side of this so while this is all going on, while Isaac is running around doing stuff that he feels uh, obligated to do, which he would, while that's going on, Cromwells are also reacting to the situation. Him and his sister are reacting at their mansion. Um, he's telling the sister what they got to do, what they're going to do. They're gonna they're gonna escape during all of this chaos, but he's got to go to the bank and get the money. And so he tells her what to do while he's gonna go do that, and they make their plan of where they're going to escape to and how. He goes to the bank and he has to wait until the, the the vault opens up by time clock. So he has to kill time. And he's doing all sorts of other like stuff to prepare for their their trip. But I think it's I think it's interesting that like ticking clock of there's this this disaster going on and this fire spreading and there's also a detective agency after me and I have to just wait for this clock to finish ticking for this door to open so that I can get my money. Yeah, and he we learn later on that he basically he's preparing to leave the country he has made some arrangements so some of his money gets sent to foreign banks classic yeah well it's, it's what you got to do uh, <laughs> either that or just keep it in uh, offshore accounts but that's what I, that's kind of what that is though yeah, that's I kind mean, of the version of that is sending your bank to foreign banks yeah sending your money so next bell is trying to determine where he might go there's a little bit of a debate of whether he'd go south to Mexico or north to Canada. Yeah, and you you kind of used this sort of as an example of like Isaac knowing too much. But if you remember correctly, this is sort of what Marion like figures out. So another hallmark of these books is the partnership, not just in relationship, but intellectual partnership of Isaac Bell and Marion Morgan. And while he's discussing the cases with her in many books, she'll give him some sort of lead or idea that leads him in the right direction and in this one she talks about information that she got as his secretary that leads her to believe where they could be going um i don't remember exactly what that information is but that they've got like a bank that they're opening up there or something like that he's going to toronto i think or he he he, she 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 remembers him talking about it's not toronto but it is a a, montreal maybe yes it's a, a canadian city and and she she had some inkling as to that that would be where they go. I mean, either way, this this sort of commences the second chase of the book. Um, yeah. So he he gets to uh, Isaac gets to a train station and discovers that um, this man has already uh, paid off the like station attendant and got them to give him a train and hook it up and uh, uh, has manhandled a crew into taking him off uh, out of the city. Uh, during this disaster where the trains are being used for other things and that the like uh 
entry and exit is already you know people are being brought into the city to help and people are trying to get out of the yeah, city and all the train cars in the area are being um commandeered basically to, for those efforts so yeah. it kind of speaks to how like awful the the cromwell is is that like he's actually not only is he like f trying to escape as a criminal he's taking resources away from like people that actually need it yeah so isaac basically makes another deal you know hey i need i need uh, what, what kind of train did he leave on? And he tells him, the once again, the specifications of that train. And Isaac says, I, I need a faster train. And the guy says, well, I could give you one, but it's it's in repair. And he goes, how, how long will it take for the repairs to finish? He's like, two hours. And he's like, perfect, I'll take it. And so I, I love the time frame of this kind of stuff. In modern day stuff, the chase, chases would be like instantaneous and like uh, there wouldn't be like an, a, uh, a two hour window of error. Mm -hmm. um, like if you were in a car chase, like someone just left, it's like, oh, they've a two hour head start on you. That's like they're gone. Don't even bother. Yeah, yeah. But in this, it's trains. They're on a track. They can't really go anywhere other than that yeah. track. So it's kind of a straight line that you're pursuing the person on. Uh, so it's a very interesting situation. And so Bell gets his train. They they put it to they, they, they bring it around and the guys the guys like uh, or he goes how how fast can this go oh was with, with uh, cars and blah 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 how about this guy's like uh, what if we had no cars which is like <laughs> the the engineer and the the fireman the the who who throws the you know keeps the engine stoked are like are you kidding me like this has been our dream like they're pretty they're pretty excited about they had it. a chance to push it to the limit and they've got yeah. a whole system figured out of how to like keep the fire at the right temperature Th and... that's another of these sort of like technological expositions that occurs in this book is there's some talk about like you got to keep the fire level and even at one point isaac bell starts shoveling and the guy's like no no you're doing it all wrong like there's a technique to this and um, it's even, all about airflow and heat distribution and things like like if you shovel it too much uh it it like chokes the fire and does, it can't burn as hot but you can't let it burn down too much so you have to like time it right um it's interesting that his team talks about that but then the other train um cromwell's train is being manhandled by his um uh his his chauffeur butler bodyguard yeah henchman so goon this guy abner weed yeah who's yeah he's this described as this stony-faced irishman and he says he's hired more for his experience as a wrestler than as a driver but in this point he's like he has his two um railroad workers one of them you know is the engineer who's basically kind of like steering and power the train and then the fire tender who's shoveling and he's pushing them to the limit and wearing them out in bad ways yeah in ways that aren't conducive to going as fast as you can which they don't, I mean, they do care about, but they also aren't, like, being mindful of it. Um, not in the ways that Isaac's team is. And Isaac's team are, like, very enthusiastic and happy because it's like they're chasing the butcher bandit. You know, they're they're very, like, th this is, you can tell Clive Cussler has, like, some reverence for people that did this work. You know, he saw them as, like, intelligent, you know, very gritty people. Like, these are, these characters are, very like working class heroes. Yeah, I imagine if you're a working class train technician, like if you're a conductor, you gotta day in and day out drive this thing around at a certain speed. You gotta stay under a certain speed. You gotta uh, follow a certain procedure. Um, and this is a, this is a, a monumental mammoth of a machine that can do all sorts of stuff, and it's just bridling with power and speed. And you never really get to 
use it to its full potential. And then you get this guy coming up and goes, how would you like to be able to use this machine to its full potential? Mm -hmm. Go on a thrill ride against a bank robber that's killed hundreds of people. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a pretty great situation for them. They, they go up, they go through this mountain pass. There's this section where like they go really fast through it. And Isaac Bell says something like, I bet, I bet we broke the record. And they're like, we did break the record. You know how we know? Because we set the record and yep. we just like did our best time through this. So I thought that was really cool. And, and at one point um, they, they have to stop to take on water and more coal and they're going to take on two... They more. won't. They, 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 they talk to the people at that station. And they're like, hey, did another train come through here? And like, yeah, they had to pull off to the siding to wait for a passenger train going the opposite direction to go by. And they were on that siding for like like two hours or an hour or something like that. And that is excellent news because it means that they're catching up in a way. They had, that the, the um, Cromwells had to stop and wait for a while. Um, and that scene is interesting because it also gives the opportunity for the, the people at that station to go, well, we'll give you some help. Mm -hmm. And so they take on another team of yeah. uh, an uh, engineer and, uh, or, or yeah, an engineer and a um, Coleman. Yeah. I always call them, I call them a fireman because I know I went to the Titanic museum and they're called like firemen. The well, they, they talk about that in this too, where he's like, uh, hand me the shovel. He's like, that isn't a shovel. That is a number five uh, fireman something i can't remember what they call yeah, it and even the way like they describe how like when bell tries to shovel it in he does like the first thing wrong which everyone who everyone knows is the wrong thing to do if you shovel coal into a fire which is like you need to open the door all the way it's like a number five fire scoop or something like yeah, that. yeah. It's, you need you need to open the door all the way even though that like puts you in the the space of all the heat which you probably don't want because if you don't it's going to swing back on you and like burn you or like hit you or, or mess you up and but they take so they take on the two more people, and, and their intention was to swap out the tired guys. And they're like, "Oh, thank you, you guys are the best." But the the two tired guys are like, "No, no we want to keep going. We want to stay. This is great." And also, with two teams on board, we don't have to stop and rest. We can literally just switch off. Yeah, it's this really the 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 heroism and like the the hard work of the railroad people is like, it's it kind of saves it's it without that Bell would not have been able to catch up with these people. Yeah. Eventually, they do catch up right as the other train is leaving on a ferry. Right. So there is a lake and um, there's a, a, a car ferry that can take trains on it. There's a train track on it. Yeah, Flathead can... Lake in Montana. Yeah. And it, it takes you basically across the border and then you can go into Canada or across yeah. to the other side of the lake. Yeah, and you can load a train onto it and it can cross and then let it off on the other tracks on the other side. So they've loaded the the uh, Cromwell's train and train car onto that and it is departing and Isaac barely makes it on board he has to run like the the he has to run and jump I think like yeah. onto it as it's departing yeah but there's a storm coming yeah so uh, you know we don't get a helicopter in this story because they don't exist yet but I do want to mention that it made its way in sort of in a weird, weird roundabout circuitous way um, we learn the history of the name of a helicopter. So I don't know if listeners will know what a Chinook is, but a Chinook is kind of like a cargo helicopter with um, two rotor blades, uh, one on front and one on back. They're um, really big helicopters. You've, you've seen them, Connor. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's a cargo helicopter, yeah, yeah. big hatchback. Uh, yeah, and it, it can lift things underneath it because it, it has two rotors. 
and those are called Chinooks. And in this story, we find out that Chinook is a name for a type of storm that blows down from the mountain in a very specific way and is very torrential and very dangerous, especially for the lake because it kicks up waves and uh, very choppy water. The captain of the ferry is does not want to leave. He's like, we're not going to go in this weather. Let's let the storm blow over. But um, Cromwell takes a pistol out and shoots one of his uh, mates, one of his um, staff there. And it's like, no, we're leaving now. So that's that's why they leave. And that's why they enter into the storm. And the captain is, is, is just certain. It's like, this is not going to work. But, you know, uh, he's being threatened under under gun. Bell makes it on. The, the, the ship starts to, like, tilt. It seems like it's about to go under. Uh, having a train on it probably isn't helping it. It doesn't. You can, you can see that later. So, uh... Bell makes it on. He he enters the train car, where the Cromwells are. Could you write that any smaller? It's really. It's not. I'm not writing really that tiny, for you. It's really tiny font. Me. No, I'm just saying. It's really everything else you wrote is in a completely different font size. I mean, <laughs> right in the smallest font possible. Right, I'm taking I'm <laughs> notes as I'm doing this, but yeah. So Cromwell and, and um, I almost said Rose. Well, Rose Manteca. <laughs> Rose Manteca. Margaret. Is, yeah, is Margaret's there too, and. The Abner character is He's there on the engine, though. He's on the engine. He ends up killing both of the uh, the engineer and the the fireman in that in the um on the in the train that's on the boat. Now they try and kind of get the jump on him, but are unsuccessful. Well, in in that doing so, something else happens. That's oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Important. So 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 he's keeping them under watch until they get to the other side, and um. Meanwhile, uh, Cromwell is back on his train car, and so when uh, Abner loses like attention for a moment, the train crew tries to jump him, and he kills one of them outright. And before the other one can be killed, he unhooks the brake. Right. So now the train is basically like free to move along the little set of tracks on the on the, on the ferry, on the, and it uh, starts to pull forward. on the deck of the ferry. Yeah, it starts to pull forward. And it's on. Nobody on board realizes it because they've been rocked around and thrown around by the waves so much they don't notice the the extra motion. And uh, there's a whole discussion going on on the. I don't remember too much of the the final discussion between uh, Cromwell and Bell, but it's the classic villain monologue and. Which is very funny because um, Isaac Bell is unarmed at this point, and I think Cromwell is armed. And earlier on. Cromwell says something like, you know, when you're doing this sort of stuff, you shouldn't sit around and talk. And basically does like the anti-Bond move where he's just like, don't tell people what your intentions are, just kill them. Yeah. But at the end here... He does it. He does the same yeah. thing. He he gloats and he he's gonna to shoot Bell. Bell's trying to tell them what's going on. He's like, hey, the train is going overboard. We have to get out of here. And uh, before Bell can jump, uh, he pulls the gun on him but he he stops to say something i don't remember the exact sentence but he stops to say some sort of insult before he shoots him like this time you won't survive or whatever and it gives just enough time for his sister to intercede yeah and, and throughout the book um there's been kind of you know it's clear bell is attracted to margaret he doesn't really he's a big himbo yeah he doesn't like like her romantically like he does marion but he's she's very sexy and he likes her and he he but she, but he's also very sexy and the women in the book like him but throughout it like you know she, she gets disappointed when 
uh, go on, go on. No, I was just saying, like, he's just, like, it's so silly to me because he keeps, she, I don't think she kills anyone in the book, but she is, like, she participates in the crimes with she's her brother. A big accomplice. She's, and she knows he ki- her brother kills people. And, like, anytime he sees her, and he, he you know, Belle knows she's involved in it, he's like, Margaret, you know you shouldn't be doing this stuff. I mean, I'm going to have to arrest you, but you should a nice girl like you shouldn't. Like, he's still, like, attracted to her it, it, throughout all he of it. He wants a happy ending for her somehow. Yeah, even, and, even though she's, like, she's not as bad as her brother, but she's not much better either. No. When, when he's thought dead, she gets really disappointed. And then when it's revealed that he's alive, it's funny. Like the the brother's like, "Oh, it was Isaac Bell." And instead of her being like, oh, "She's like, oh, like he's not dead." And in this scene, she sides with him and stops the brother. And Bell goes to leap and tries to bring her with him. And there's some uh, slip or something, and she she doesn't make it off in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, she kind of like pushes Bell free, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he they they all go down with the ship basically, and they all drown except Bell. Bell gets off and he survives. And but once the ship is once the train is free, the ferry corrects a lot easier. And the I remember the the captain of the ferry notes how it's less treacherous now or something like it. It's it suddenly got easier. Okay, so the ship. Okay, I'm I'm not remembering the ship doesn't go down. No, but, but the, okay. the 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 train car does. The train goes off the edge of the ferry, and that's what they go down in. Right, and then yeah. and then the ferry operator talks about how the like the waves aren't affecting them as much anymore, and that that's lightening up, and that that is pretty much the end of the, the main story. The yep. story it jumps back to to nineteen, I think it's nineteen fifty, and Isaac Bell again is an older man. They talk about how there was an attempt by an insurance agency or something to to recover the car. It was never found. The technology is available now. Isaac Bell has like financed it. And they recover the car. They discover basically these... They're described as like simultaneously like waxy and goopy bodies that were like semi-preserved. And they find the dead... They confirm that the dead bodies there. They find the money, which is all mushy, I think. And the uh, Van Dorn's children, who are now running the organization, are there at the end too. So it seems to me yeah, like Joseph Van Dorn is mentioned to be like eighty, yeah, and he is retired. But the organization is now run by his children, which is and another then, Pinkerton connection. That same thing, yeah, that same thing happens with uh, Alan Pinkerton. Alan, right? Alan Pinkerton, yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, they briefly talk about Marion and his relationship, and that they have kids, and yeah, they get um, engaged in, in 1906. Like they get, they decide to get married. I think like around the time of the earthquake. Um, I think so. I know in one of the future books they, they talk more about the marriage. Like you, you. One of the cool things about the series is you follow the like regular events of their deepening relationship, which is different from a lot of the other books too, because there aren't a lot of continuing stories in like the Dirk Pitt books. Nothing really carries from one book to another, um, at least not much. I guess they they find Atlantis at some point, and that's like an ongoing spoilers. Atlantis is real, whatever. Um, but like there isn't much that continues from one book to another and in this you get that uh relationship that continues on which is really nice yeah hold on <laughs> did you just write atlantis down atlantis dad lit checklist <laughs> <laughs> um i well yeah so uh, okay so that's Connor, the, look at me what 
in the in the time that we do this podcast, if you can get more than three appearances of Atlantis yeah. for our checklist, I have. I will books. hand you ten dollars. I have some. I I have some books. I do want to read a book about Atlantis that's a little different. It's not. It's. But do you think? Okay, aside from it being specifically in the title, yeah. do you think Atlantis is going to come up more than three times? Um, I'll put. Okay, I'll put. I'll put. Uh, I'll you put don't even bucks. have to put money down. I'll put the ten bucks down. If it doesn't happen, I, I get nothing. All right, but this will be an ongoing checklist. This will be. You're gonna be... influence. I know you're gonna pick books. You're gonna look for it. Well, I have. To, <laughs> so there's a there's a this author Dennis Wheatley. Okay. Who wrote these? He writes these like occult detective novels. Um, the Duke Duke Reclo, I think, is his name, and um, he. One of them was made into a movie called The Devil Rides Out, but they're like aristocratic. I've heard of that. Yeah, he, it's based on one of his books. They're like aristocratic detective novels where they investigate like occult crimes. I don't actually know. Can we talk about how many aristocratic detectives there are? Hercule Poirot, Sherlock Holmes, uh, Isaac, Isaac Bell, Bell a little bit. Um, yeah. But he, he did write these. Even uh, the guy uh, from Murders in the Room Org. I can't remember his name now. But oh, the, yeah. the, he's basically the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. But that was an aristocrat with just a random dude he meets on the street. And they become like a Sherlock Holmes Watson situation. Yeah. he. I mean, he he's like, hey, how's it going, stranger? You're pretty interesting. Do you want to come solve a murder with me? Yes, that sounds fantastic. He, you know, it's funny, too, because Alan Pinkerton references that detective in his, like, criminology writing. I have one of his... I think it's the, um, I'm looking at the general principles and rules of Pinkerton's National Police Agency. I think it might be in there he references it, but he talks about the history of the detective as a phenomenon and, like, the emergence of, like, the professional well, that detective. Is one of the, that is one of the first, like, uh, fictional stories of, yeah. like, a, there's certainly of that archetype of, like, detective and, uh, what a great face you just made. No one's gonna get to enjoy because <laughs> this is an audio medium. I'm gonna... <laughs> uh, the, the, like... That archetype of detective and sidekick because like poro has um dupin or dupin yeah 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 yeah. i just looked it up to be fair <laughs> that's fine yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah like a lot of those people have like a, a watson type character yeah um yeah and uh, um i should say uh sir arthur conan doyle met alan pinkerton and incorporated like a pinkerton type character into one of his stories I will insert yeah, the title please, of that Please here. let me know when you remember, because I have read all of those. I do not remember all of those, because uh, listeners, some of them aren't good. A lot of them blend together. There's a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories, and like a handful of them are noteworthy. I have a, um, a book, a used book I found recently that is, uh, I think you saw a picture I posted of it. It is, a, it is um, Sherlock Holmes investigating Dr. Jekyll. Uh, it's so it's like a you know crossover. I, I, when you're done with that, I will pay the shipping for you to mail that. To Seems me. like an Alan Moore type, you know, yeah, yeah, like thing. a crossover situation. Yeah. And but it's it's written, it's like from the files of uh, Doctor Watson. You know, it's that's well, all um, of those books were under that guy's. They it, were all books that he supposedly wrote during the cases with Sherlock. It's hard to remember the name of the author of this book I just referenced because when you look at the cover, it looks like. The book is written, written by, by Dr. John, Watson. Yeah, yeah. John Watson. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so that the story ends with that framing device. Um, Isaac Bell is much older. Marion is much older. They reference that they have kids as well. And I want to make the, I want to make a point that this is a strong, and in my opinion, incorrect decision to make for your first book. 
Do you want to know why? Well, you know that he doesn't die. You know that they stay married. Yes, and that him, Joseph Van Dorn, and Marion are fine. So in a future book, which, spoilers for people, um, Marion becomes a movie director. That's that's awesome. It's very cool. She's a great character. I I really like Marion Morgan a lot. She might be my favorite female character in fiction. In early, probably like early, like, yes, filmmaking. One of the books, The uh, The Thief, is about early filmmaking and the the production of talkies. The the, the changeover from... Uh, black and white silent movies to talkies and it's interesting because it's framed as a a, a tool for propaganda you'd love that book so it, what, um, what's cool but what, in a future book though uh there's a, a movie that she's working on that quite possibly one of the characters involved in the movie production is maybe jack the ripper and oh, and wow. she's put into danger and it is completely undermined by the fact that the first book in the series establishes that she is fine well into her later years. What's that's so cool? I I have to read this. This scene, this scene. the whole series is great, dude. We should just do the Isaac Bell podcast now. <laughs> uh, we could spin off into that. I'd be I mean, okay with that. There's not enough of them. It's all dad lit. It is. But it, it's interesting because it seems like what what Michael Crichton, the way Michael Crichton um, uses his interest, his fascination in various scientific topics to like be the, the sort of center of of a novel there seems to be like similar um fascination with like historical phenomenon and technology i was gonna say Clyde technology Kessler. especially and like i said like it's it's taking cutting edge technology and showing it to you in a way that seems um not magical but like uh noteworthy in an age where it's not noteworthy anymore like to us it's not that interesting but to the people in the time period it was amazing I, I will say you could say this does this with trains, but I I, I don't I want to be careful not to oversell the sort of you do learn about trains in this a bit more than you would in probably you learn any a lot other, about but, the, but the locomobile you learn a lot a little bit about motorcycles yeah I I, I it's, you get you get at least at least three or four uh, cars mentioned and you know I would I actually I, yeah I would say trains are central to this I mean the, the whole train car it is central I'm just trying to think about like how much of the detective uh, yeah yeah i'd be comfortable saying that i'm just i'm just thinking about how like the you're describing you've described like that other book that the the um the race you know i'm wondering if in other books i guess i'll have to wait and see if the technology is more more central to the to it but yeah trains are important well i can i can just i can so if anyone's interested in reading the series it's fine that we just told you the plot to the first one the first one is good but I think the I think they get better as they go for a while. So I would highly recommend this series to people who are interested in either westerns, noir, spy novels, or just uh, the history of American technology. Um, the second book is about a saboteur. The third book is about um, the a, a person who is. Um, assassinating or causing horrible accidents to undermine the production of uh, ironclad battleships hmm. it's a very interesting book and features a submarine we need to get more submarines on this podcast I, we talk about we talk some... about it all the time i told you we should read that one and then you chose this one it's fine <laughs> um I, I like that one i was the first one of these i actually read and it's pretty cool it's got like irish mob stuff in it which it, that's where i was like this is a very noir series because that one especially is like dealing with a lot more of like the seedy underbelly of big cities and then uh the fourth one is my favorite or yeah the fourth one it's um called the race and it's about a a female monoplane pilot hires the detective agency 
uh, for protective services as her ex, who is a mobster, is trying to kill her during a uh, cross-country airplane race. That's quite quite the premise. It's really that. cool. It's it's and uh, mild spoilers, but not really. Isaac has to enter to the race so that he can be close to her at all times. All right. Well, I mean, that's it's it's another technology. You know, it's a lot uh, more technological tra- tra- transportation technology. I should say. That, yeah, that seems to be Clive Cussler's. It is central. Interest. It is central because, like I said, uh, first one, first two are about trains. Second one or third one's about like boats and there's a submarine. Uh, the fourth one's about planes, and then the fifth one is about like um, uh, steam ships, like big, um, like not the Titanic, but like similar kind of. Um, commuter ships uh and that's the one i told you about that's about like talkies and the production of movies so do you want to talk about this as let's review it as not as dad lip but as a book that we enjoyed and would we recommend it to a general audience hands down yes i absolutely would <laughs> i would do that i would you know i think there's about, a lot a lot in this there's a lot of intrigue there's uh you you get multiple chases you get multiple scene scenes of like people in disguise playing off one another and different types of like spycraft and intrigue. Um, the character work is really good. I think all the characters are pretty well fleshed out and likable um, and explored. Like we briefly talked about how women are handled in these books, and Margaret is kind of played up to be a little bit more loose. Uh, there's several times where she wears revealing clothing there's the time where they go to the party on not party but they go out party they all slumming uh and um yeah, that's when they they when jacob cromwell meets up with a gangster he knows red kelly and employs him to try and kill bell i love that that conversation is hey uh we want you to kill a very famous detective or a very famous agency and he's like well that's not gonna be easy <laughs> he's like well and, and they're gonna come after me if they figure it out he's like well maybe make it look like an accident or like that you know that you weren't involved and then what does he do he just shows up in Bell's apartment as himself, not with it, not hired someone else, comes as himself and says, hi, I'm Red Kelly. Wait, I'm going to kill you. He does have another guy with him. <laughs> he has him, another guy with him, but, but he literally says, hi, this is my name and I'm responsible. Yeah. It, it's, it was, it is a little like, and, and considering that this guy's kind of, I took him to be a somewhat like famous gangster. Yeah. It'd and be people like, know him. Oh, Mr. Bell. And there's a Mr. Capone like waiting in your room for right? you. Well, no um, one, no one tells him he's in the room. It's a, yeah. su- it's a surprise. He, he kind of, he knows something, he knows yeah. something's up. He goes in, he thinks someone's in the room. He finds out someone's in the room and there's a fight. But I think, I just thought it was funny how he completely disregards everything that was talked about of how making it look like an accident. Like, what were they going to do either? Like he was going to beat him up in the room and then, and he has a gun with him too. And yeah. they start firing. And I'm like, as soon as you start firing a gun, like you're going attention. You're you're yeah. Get... You, you, if anything, you'd like, I don't know, cut his brakes or do, I don't the brakes aren't very good to begin with on his car, but like do something a little more, you know, stealthy and uh, assassin. Yeah. But yeah. So what I was touching at though is when they go, um, when they go slumming, I can't remember where that, what, the name of that place is that they go. They go to like a cl- like a like a nightclub kind. It's of Red thing. Kelly's is what yeah. it's called, but it's uh, what is that neighborhood called? It's like a a red light district kind of area. Oh, I don't. There, it's not Knob Hill. They talk about Knob. Uh, no, they the live bank in Knob is Hill. on Knob Hill. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no. Uh, but at any rate, they get they go slumming and uh, there's like strippers and a brothel and they talk about how um, the one of the dancers comments about margaret's outfit and being like oh you would do well here um 
and everyone kind of like turns their nose up at it or takes it as an insult and like margaret doesn't yeah at one point she actually talks about how she should go undercover into a brothel to like i think in in telluride like she she suggests that it, it she she kind of hints that she would be willing to work in a brothel yeah in order to uh, like but she's do... very a very um i want to say promiscuous but a very forward-minded open-minded person in this story and her sexuality is very much used as a tool yeah whereas marion is uh very proper dresses very properly uh is uh when she goes along with them for the slumming trip she's um aghast at a lot of stuff that's going on around them uh, very turned off by it it's exciting to her but not in a way that makes her not want to leave yeah she i guess i don't know if we mentioned this but jacob and margaret are described as like they have humble beginnings and he 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 uses bank robbery to like start the bank i believe like it's the bank is built on on bank robber money yeah but he's at the point of his goal is to overcome wells fargo at this point though he has enough money where like the bank makes money for itself but so they do have like humble beginnings and there is like i think a sense of like I looked at those two characters like I could see them as like two, you know, impoverished children together. So I like that Margaret kind of has a lust for life. There, I like that about her character. But we were like I was saying, she's a likable character though. Like even with being like a villainess, she's relatable in a weird way and uh, likable. I think the only real character in this book that's not likable is Jacob, and that he's not supposed to be. But everyone else, I think, is is pretty well. Other than like the side detectives aren't really well flushed out, but they don't need to be. Yeah, it, this appeals to a general audience. Anyone could really enjoy this book. If you enjoy reading... I think even more so than the other Custler series. It's it's not as dense as the other ones. No. Uh, we, we we have talked about Clive Custler in the past and tried to review some of his books, and I think one of the challenges is so much happens in those books. And some of it's important, some of it isn't. A, a lot happens in this, but it, it moves along at a really nice pace. Um, it's you get to see you know the history through the eyes of a really charismatic character i agree i think to a general audience this book is is highly readable and highly enjoyable big recommend but you already told, heard us talk about it so sure. uh maybe just start with the next one but as what you can do these are standalone even though there's a, a, a ongoing story between uh isaac and marion each of the books are standalone and can be enjoyed on their own like i said i started with book three and loved it should we go through the checklist first or should we give it our White Sneakers Award first? Oh, well, we'll save the White Sneakers after the checklist. Here's what I wanted to say about, in terms of This is Dad Lit. Even though Cussler is not chronologically the first, like, quintessential Dad Lit writer. He might, I, might be the most, though. He, he might be the... Well, okay. He he is a quintessential Dad Lit writer. His books, I think we can treat any of them kind of like... They're all Dad Lit texts. Um, the, whole, the whole text I see is, like embodiment of dad lit like i said the the first the first page of this book gets into a description of like the functions of 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 a locomotive engine and i'm like as soon as i saw that i'm like all right here we go we're 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 in we're dad lit. Yeah. yeah we're th- but that being said there are certain aspects of this book that i think that stand out things we've d- discussed before and things that we can add to the checklist so starting off hyper competent male protagonist yes absolutely isaac bell is is exactly that he's good at cards he's good at shooting He's good at girls. And I think <laughs> also, and this applies to, I guess, to maybe all hyper-competent male protagonists, but I think he kind of, he he's like an intellectual gentle, gentleman and kind of, he has some rugged Western qualities. Like, 
He, I want to bring this up though. He is fallible. He's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't quite put him in the the situation of Mary Sue. Dirk Pitt falls into that a couple times in some of those books. Like he crosses over into Mary Sue territory. Isaac is fallible. He he can get tricked. He can get jumped. He can get almost killed. He gets injured a lot. I I don't ever have a problem with how competent he is. He does that that whole Telluride operation. The sting is a follow up and it's botched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone dies from it, and he almost gets killed himself. And I thought one thing about that is I thought it was kind of... It could have gone another way. Van Dorn, you know, greets him after he wakes up from his injury and he's in a hospital and he's like, you know what? Hey, don't blame yourself. You know, these things happen. I'd be lying if I said I did. I never did something like that. But I thought that... I don't I know I don't know the character Van Dorn too well, but I thought it could, it could have been a little bit more of like, what were you thinking? Like putting someone there in that situation, like you you don't put people's lives at risks like like that. Several other characters kind of bring that up, but yeah, well it's, a, it's a, as you said it's an example of him being fallible. But I thought that it, he kind of got away with not even a slap on the, on the wrist. But I, I don't remember the other characters being hard on him. But I'm sure there there were there you know I don't I'm just don't recall that in the book, but I'm sure it happens. You know. So yeah, hyper male protagonist. Okay. Or hyper well hyper male too, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Hypercompetent male protagonist, yeah. breezy scientific exposition, sure, with the functions of vehicles and engines and stuff. Yeah, there are no there are no helicopters, no, no submarines, no, but there is an emphasis on vehicle technology. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fondness for this, so I want to add. This might be too broad, but like, and it probably is the same thing as scientific breezy scientific exposition, but vehicle porn in this okay no vehicle porn absolutely should be an item on the checklist because okay. that's a common thing throughout every dad lit book i can think of and we'll have to distinguish this then from breezy scientific exposition but vehicle porn here we i have... think vehicle porn can be the other thing that you wanted to add to the checklist somewhere was the like um iconic car or like a uh, signature car mm-hmm. get rid of that keep signature item and then use vehicle porn as the vehicle thing yeah. okay yeah so, so in this we have railroad cars including a Baldwin 462 locomotive and Southern Pacific Railroad cars. And we learn about like the background and functions of those things. How they line them up, how they categorize them, how they use the serial number, like a lot of the function of how a train yard works. We have a Mississippi steamboat. Um, We learn a little bit about it. I, I seem to remember there's a talk about like the history of steamboats and how at this time they wouldn't have been like as popular as they once were. Yep. Uh, we have an early Harley Davidson motorcycle. That's Cromwell's getaway vehicle. We've got Bell's own motorcycle. It's this sort of like red sporty thing. It seems to be some kind of racing model. We have a 1906 Rolls Royce that's owned by the Cromwells. We have a Mercedes Simplex also owned by the Cromwells. Mm-hmm. We have the Locomobile race car, which they end up wrecking, and that's the one that, that, that it Bell's going to... Yeah, it returns. And we have a cargo ship at the end and we like i said we learn about the function of all these things so i'm for that i'm gonna say vehicle porn check for sure okay this this is a uh i think a new one we've discussed it before but historically situated Mm -hmm. there's not only is there the san francisco earthquake in central to this but we learn the history of pretty much every restaurant and hotel the bell visits and cities like we heard learn the history of telluride Mm -hmm. we learn the history of the jail yeah Includes henchmen. That's a new one. Oh, that is new. we should have had that in like book one. I know. 
Oh um, man, yeah, Abner is a great henchman. Abner, Abner is the Irishman who uh, does whatever he needs. Does to. whatever Cromwell wants. Cromwell him to kills do. a dude at one point. Abner just without skipping a beat just helps pick up the body and move it. Then there's, <laughs> there's Red Red Kelly who I I don't know if he's a henchman, but no, he's like a he's secondary. A boss, yeah. secondary like he has villain. a henchman with him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, is there any other th- stuff on the pre-existing checklist that we that you would add to this? Actually, I have a few. Um, yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. I'm just trying to think of what we've talked about before that would apply to this. Uh, we need, we really need to print this thing out so we can just look at it. Yeah. Um, listeners, we're gonna have an episode about the checklist coming up. We've talked about it, so you'll get to get a little bit more of this yeah, in detail. We're, we're gonna organize all the items yeah. and, and, and talk about yeah. talk about examples of each. Okay, I actually just remembered a few illustrations. This book has illustrations and it has maps. What? Mine didn't. Uh, well, <laughs> you can imagine. I audio booked. They, they don't like describe yeah. the illustrations. It, it, the, All the, of the Custler books do that. All the Custler books have um, at least a front, like open, like the first page is some sort of map or detail of whatever is being salvaged. Mm-hmm. And this has several, I think. This also has a preview of the of Stop. Another book. I don't. I, I still disagree about this. Every. Mass marketed paperback has that. Well, Harry Potter books did that. Yeah, okay. Are we counting Harry Potter books as dadlet? We've approached this subject before and never really gone deep dive. Harry into Potter it. books have train. They do have a train in them. Um, <laughs> is there a hyper competent male protagonist? No, hyper incompetent male protagonist. Are there are there henchmen? Henchmen. There are henchmen. Crab and Goyle. Well, then we future episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so. Here's some some new ones that we just discussed. Character thought dead. Yep. Okay. Protagonist has a signature item. Yep. In this case, it's the Derringer in the hat. Um, I want to add two. The book has Bond villain talk, or it has anti-Bond villain talk. Are we just villain monologue? Are we going to put that in? Villain monologue or or villain anti-monologue? Because for for as cliche as the villain monologue is, bringing it up. As like a, a reference, a, a meta kind of awareness of yeah. like you know this is where I'd be saying something clever like that's like okay hold on cliche. so how about here's your two items right here's here's your villain monologue okay and then meta awareness of villain archetype okay perfect there's not really gun porn in this I mean there's some discussion of handguns there's there's, there's enough but like it compared in, to in, other in future books there are in the series but this one is not really about guns it, the, the gun they do, talk they is... do talk about that um, Cromwell has like a special way of silencing his shots but they never oh. really go into full detail he wraps it in like a towel like a, or something a, like a that a thick cloth I, yeah. I always picture it as like a comforter like he took a piece of quilt and wrapped it around yeah. and but I would say that a lot of the gun talk kind of segs into the like history talk. It's not. Yeah. It's not as. It's not as. It's not as distinct as like the just, last book. Yeah, the last book we did, as yeah. you gave off a laundry list of guns. Yeah. There's mostly just handguns in this. That's really it, and the little the Dillinger and some pistols, and uh, I think there's like some semi-automatic like handguns. All right, so those are the items on the Dadlit checklist. Ranking this as a piece of Dadlit, how Dadlitty is this? It's pretty high. I'm going to put it 80 white cowboy boots. Okay. Part, part of the reason why I don't want to give it 100% dad. Uh, no, it isn't. But is because, well, because there's things if, missing. I don't know if we will find it 100%. It, well, yeah. We'll be, be looking for that for years. Because Tom Clancy is going to rank very high in, in, certain, in regards. certain regards. Michael Crichton's going to rank high in other regards. 
The reason I'm kind of reluctant to rate this super high is it has a ton of the qualities. It really scratches, I think, like the itch of a, of a dad audience, like of yeah, an older... Yeah, it has that, that sense of adventure, the escapism. Yes. Um, even, we, I was going to bring this up earlier, but there's almost like a sense of like, you could almost see yourself being any of the characters you want I, you want to be isaac bell but like, you also you could also see the the fun of being a bank robber like yeah when you're a kid and you played cowboys and indians or ever like bank robbers like, yeah cops and robbers yeah, yeah cops and robbers like you there's some sort of a little bit of romanticizing of being a bank robber in this like yeah, the role of it is well especially you see his lifestyle you see that the sister enjoying the lifestyle you see the use of money in Bell and in Cromwell, where Bell is works for Van Dorn, and it seems like he gets reimbursed for some things, but he, he lives his own money. He, yeah, they, they, most he of shows it. up at that field office in Den Denver. Yeah, and they're like, "Oh, so you'll be staying at the whatever?" He's like, "No, I'll be staying at the really nice fucking place across town." They're like, yeah. "What? They okayed that?" He's like, "They didn't have to okay it. I'm paying it out of pocket." Right. Yeah. <laughs> and Cromwell kind of does it similarly when he gets on the train to escape. It's not like he's like dressing like a hobo and like getting into a like a cargo um, box he's getting into like His a ri super nice ritzy car so you do get to see these people with money kind of giving themselves like the best experience at the time albeit in different roles hero and villain but i guess what i'm getting back to the dadla thing is that because it's historically situated i wonder if it is like easier to make it adventurous i don't know i'm, th I'm thinking about like pulp adventure novels yeah, I'm just. Which this is definitely a like an homage to sort of. Well, I think I thought and I'll, when I talk about the Pinkertons, this is the sort of thing that Alan Pinkerton would write about his own organization. It oh, kind yeah, of. we'll talk about that for sure. But okay, um, let me just get to it. I'll give it. I don't want to just give it another eighty, but I'll give it seventy-eight white sneakers plus a Derringer pistol tucked into a uh, wide brim hat. All right, I'll take it. All right, do you want to? <laughs> One. Two, three. That, that seems, seems like, like a good place, place to wrap stop. up. <laughs> right. we, we're going to uh, we're going to stop there. We've gone over the, all all of the plot. Next, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about a little bit more of the structure and genre that I want to finish talking about and make a hard decision on what genre we'd consider this aside from just historical literature. Also, we definitely want to dive into the real life detective agency, the Pinkertons, and the interesting history and founding of that. We're also going to do our uh, cast-off segment where we talk about how we would cast this in a film, which uh, should be interesting because there's some really strong characters here. And in casting this, you're kind of, we're trying to consider, like, how would we build this franchise? And yeah, who as a franchise, it? not just as a single. So, yeah, we discuss who can carry something across multiple stories. But thank you for listening, everyone. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we definitely did, and we think you would enjoy the book and the series catch us next time uh if you have anything that you want to comment on recommend or any concerns that you want to bring up please do uh, yell at us online at dadlitpodcast at gmail.com and on our instagram at dad dadlitpodcast yes thank you for listening uh, and uh, dad you later <laughs>
recording. We don't need to clap. No, we don't. Do it anyway. No, <laughs> yeah. Um, we want to break tradition. Get out of here. Just don't ask questions. 